Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning Bible study. We gather every Sunday morning in person and online to study God's Word, to pray together, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us from our sins, who has brought a way of right relationship between us and God, who's brought us out of darkness into light. And it's because of Him that we gather. I want to let you know about a few things that are going on in our church. Uh, first is September 2nd, that's a Wednesday, we are having the third and final summer blood drive. Uh, you may know, you may not know, but so many, uh, there's so much need in our community for blood uh, donations. And what happened was that so many of the, uh, the ways that the, the Red Cross and other groups got blood donations was through um, corporate uh, campuses, Nike and Dell and um, Adidas and Columbia and, and, and then smaller business parks as well. But all of those sort of things dried up when the shutdown happened. And churches especially have been sort of standing in the gap. And so we've been able to give. I gave last time. I'm, I'm a universal blood type, and so they, they love my blood. Um, and they told me that the, they process it, and they, they get the plasma out, and then they get the, something called creosotin for, bit, bur, um, for burn victims. And so they say up to three people can, can benefit from, from if you have an AB donation. And um, added bonus is that you get a COVID test. Uh, they do... Um, they, they check your blood for antibodies. They do an antibody test, and you, uh, you get a little report back. And so according to them, according to the Red Cross, I have not had COVID. Uh, we also need help with the check-in table. We need volunteers for that. I know Jones reached out to me already, but if you've got a little bit of time on Wednesday the 2nd, uh, it's an afternoon, and so uh, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. The other thing that's going on is we have been meeting all summer in our field, and it's been a great time. I've really enjoyed it. But summers don't last in Oregon. And so we will be uh, Sunday, September 13th, the Sunday after Labor Day, we will be back in our building. Uh, if you've not been to our church, uh, we have a very long hall style meeting room. And if you've been to our church, you know that I'm standing in the back of the, the room. And so the chairs will be going all the way to the back. We'll have them spread out. Uh, we have the, we're very fortunate with the type of room we have, just as we've been very fortunate having our field, uh, that we're able to do things social distanced and we'll do all the things we need to do uh, to keep, uh, you know, safety and everything like that. But we're, we're looking forward to uh, moving back into our building starting September 13th. Every Sunday morning, we gather together. We study the Word of God. Every Thursday, we have a, a Bible study podcast. We're currently going through the book of Exodus. The reason we do is because God loves us, and He loves us so much that He has given us His Word so that we could know Him and know His heart and know, know His thoughts as He's revealed them to us through the writings of prophets and apostles. If you remember, we've been in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, for a few weeks now. And we're going to start in verse 35. But Jesus came into Jerusalem, declared himself the Messiah, the promised, the prophesied Savior. 
God had promised and prophesied back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, yes, there is a curse, a judgment, but I'm telling you somebody is going to come who will defeat this enemy. Moses, after he had led the the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt and, and he was standing with them for one of the last times, he said, you've been following me, but there's coming somebody greater than I am. And you need to follow him. King David wanted to build God a house. And God said, I don't live in a house made of human hands. But I'm going to build you a house, David. And from your descendants, from your royal line, will be a king whose kingdom has no end. And the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, began to look and see visions of this coming Savior. And Jesus has publicly declared himself, arriving in Jerusalem the very day that the prophet Daniel said the Messiah would appear. And he has been teaching in the temple. He has cleansed the temple. He has been debating and and arguing, and that sounds wrong, but, but follow me here, but he's been debating and arguing with the religious leaders of the day, and we've studied that the last couple weeks. And verse 35 says, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, so he is, he is, this is all still the same thing. This, this is all still the same day that we've been studying over the last several weeks. This is all happening quickly, and he's teaching there, and one of the things he said is that he asked Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Remember that I said Jesus has been debating and arguing with the religious leaders. It's not because Jesus was looking for a fight. You know, it feels like some Christians, people in general, but there are some Christians who just feels like they're out there looking for a a fight, an argument, and they're all on social media. Jesus was just bringing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of people, the kingdom of, of humanity was pushing back at this invasion. Jesus brought us a new and better covenant. In the old system, you had to keep all of the rules. We learned last week that there were 613 official rules that you had to keep to be right before God. And there were many, many more unofficial and unwritten rules that you would have had to keep to be right before people. And Jesus brought a new system, a better system, a complete system. Through his death and his resurrection, our sins aren't just covered, they're washed away. He kept every law. He kept every rule. He was perfect and he puts his perfection on us. And we stand before God the Father, not in our own goodness, but covered and cleansed by the goodness of Jesus Christ. And the the sermon title, the big idea today is that Jesus saves and religion fails. 
Jesus saves and religion fails, or how to avoid a false faith. You see, all through the history of the church, people have had to fight the temptation and the drive to turn back to religion. Even in the very first days, the very first Christians had to fight this. That's why we have the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Because there were churches in this region called Galatia in what's now Turkey, in the Mediterranean. And they had begun to say, it's not just faith in Jesus alone that saves us. They said, it's faith in Jesus, plus you have to keep certain rules. And for them, it was uh, that, that you had to be circumcised if you were a man, according to the Jewish custom. For other churches, it's been different things. Faith in Jesus plus baptism. Faith in Jesus plus church membership or catechism or confirmation. Faith in Jesus plus you have to look a certain way and dress a certain way and vote a certain way. Whatever it is, people have always had to fight the temptation to add something to the gospel. Faith in Jesus is not enough, they say. You have to do these acts religious acts, religious actions, religious observances, and these will make you right before God. But Jesus, for the last several weeks, we've seen how he is better than religion. And this morning, he asks this question about the Messiah. I'm going to tell you that the first way to avoid false faith, the first way to avoid going back to a religious system is don't reduce Jesus. Don't make Jesus less than he is. This is why, by the way, I have a shared faith with people of different denominations, Baptists, Assemblies of God, Foursquare, Presbyterians, the Wesleyan Church, non-denominational groups like Calvary Chapel or uh, you know, the Vineyard, which is a denomination, but it feels non-denominational. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different groups out there. The Acts 29 Network, the ARC Network. I'm thankful for our brothers and our sisters and the wide diversity of the Church of Jesus. Because we all believe the same essential things about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, not of works, so that no one can boast. We can't reduce Jesus. That's why I don't have that same commonality, that same uh, communion with the Latter-day Saints because they reduce Jesus. He's not God. He's the Son of God. The Muslims, people say, oh, we're all people of the same book. We're all people of the same faith. The Muslims do not believe that Jesus is God. They do not believe that, that Jesus is anything more than a prophet. They reduce him and, and so on and so on. If you want to avoid false faith, and human religion that always fails, do not reduce who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. In verse 35 to 36, there's a teaching on the Messiah. 
And some of this is cultural. We don't quite understand this. But what, what Jesus is saying is, this is the common belief about the Messiah, that he's the son of David, which is true. In, in the Old Testament, the prophecy was that the Messiah would be of the royal line of King David. And Jesus was of the royal line of King David. His mother Mary was a descendant of King David. His adopted human foster father Joseph was as well, although as we studied uh, at Christmas time, uh, Joseph could not have an heir who would reign on the throne, and that was a different prophecy. But Jesus is saying, hey, you guys all say that the Messiah is the son of David. Yes. And by the way, Jesus is the son, is a son of David. He's a descendant of David. So he's identifying himself. That's the first thing that this teaching does. It has multiple purposes. It, it identifies himself as Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. But then the next thing that he does is he's confirming the scripture. He's saying, hey, this is what the scripture says. One of the ways that people reduce who Jesus is, is by reducing the scripture. I think that, you know, the most famous example is the, is the Jefferson Bible, you know, where he cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like. But people have been doing that forever. There's part of the Bible you don't like and you just ignore it. I had uh, some friends uh, who were of the Reformed tradition, godly couple, young married couple serving Jesus. They're still serving Jesus. They, they pastor over in Eastern Oregon now. But they were convinced in, in this idea that God chose who would be saved and that humans don't choose that at all. And I said, what about the verses that talk about choose this day who you will serve? When Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2 and preached to the, the crowd and the first uh, evangelistic service happened, uh, he said, save yourself from this wicked and perverse generation. Choose this day. You know, turn your hearts to Jesus. Well, then uh, they just kind of ignored it or said, well, I think there's more verses that support my opinion. I said, okay, fine, but what about these verses? You can't ignore them. Anytime that we try to reduce the word of God, we reduce who Jesus is. Anytime we try to reduce the fullness of God's word, Jesus is described in John's gospel as the word of God. And I believe that the part of what happens is we reduce who Jesus is. So Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah. He's confirming the scriptures. And he's trying to expand their understanding. See, there's a cultural thing we don't get. Because what does he say? He says, how is he the son of David? Because the scripture says, the Lord said to my Lord. In verse 37, David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? A father would never call his son Lord or Master. A grandfather would never call his grandson his superior. In that culture, and it wasn't just first century Jewish culture, this was, this was just everywhere. You do not put yourself above your elders. This still exists all over the world today. In, in, in cultures far and wide. It's only a very uh, white Euro-American centric view of culture that, that doesn't see this. Uh, if you go to Korea, if you go to Africa, there, there are all over where the, the 
elders, the fathers, the grandfathers are honored and revered. It's only Western culture that uh, puts youth as the, the focal point. And so in their culture, they would not have ever said, my son or my grandson or my great-grandson is my superior. The honored father, the honored elder was always superior. So Jesus is saying, why then does David call him his Lord if he's his son? What Jesus is doing is not contradicting the scriptures. He's trying to expand their understanding. He's saying the Messiah is the son of David. And that's one of the confirming marks of Jesus' claim to being the Messiah. He's saying the scripture is true because Jesus is basing this on the scripture. The, the, the word of God, as they had it to that point, that Jesus is saying, hey, this is true, but I want to expand your understanding. When we have limited views of God, when we have limited views of Jesus, when we have limited views of God's work in us through his spirit, we are going to reduce who Jesus is and we will be in danger of falling into false faith, falling into human religion. I'm, I'm convinced, as I have endeavored in the last three years to learn the story of our church and our group of churches and our heritage and our tradition, Faith on Hill comes from what's called the Wesleyan holiness tradition. And John Wesley was a guy who just loved Jesus and took following Jesus so seriously. And he said, how can I live as a servant of God and not walk rightly before God? How can I live as a servant of God and be false or be a hypocrite? I need the holiness of God in my life so that I can do what God wants. And because I love God so much, that's what I want. And so he, he was living in a Christian culture. He was living in England, pre-American Revolution. And there's an a official church and everyone's a Christian. If you, if you were born in England in that time, you were a Christian. It was just how it was. You were baptized as a baby and boom, you're a Christian. You're automatically a member of your local parish church. And there's no question about that. You go to the village church every Sunday and that's just how it is. And John Wesley said, you can go to church every Sunday, but if God hasn't done a work in your life, then what assurance do you have of salvation? So he took it seriously. And our group of churches was very influenced by him. And as they preached the gospel throughout America over the last several hundred years, that the emphasis was not on a casual faith, not on a false faith, but on a faith that has had a real life change. Uh, the, the, the power of God is working in our lives and, and we are not the same people. What, what the scripture says that if any person is in Christ, the old things have passed away and we are new creations. Here's the problem, is that over the years, people reduced what walking rightly before God is. They reduced what holiness is. They reduced what it was to follow Jesus. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't go to movies, dress very conservatively. This is it. Jesus wants to expand our understanding. 
to walk rightly before God is not just that we choose to reject addiction. It's, a, it's not just that we choose to reject immorality. It's, it's not just those things. Being holy before God is so much more. And as I read the scriptures, I see, oh, it's not just that we stand for the, the rights of the unborn, but it's that we stand for the value of all people. It's that, that we care and we walk in humility. So much of Protestant evangelical Christianity right now, it feels like it lacks humility. I'm not saying that a person does or that you do. I'm just saying it's how it feels sometimes. That in, you know, the scripture says, be, be slow to speak, be quick to listen. And it feels like it's the opposite. We're very slow to listen and we're very quick to speak. And I believe that God wants to expand our knowledge of him and his gospel and his work in us because at times we always want to limit it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. The, the word of God is true, but you have a limited knowledge of it, a limited understanding, and I want to blow it up. I want to expand it. Anytime we reduce who Jesus is, anytime we reduce who Jesus is, we are going to be in danger of falling into false faith. And then in verse 38, he's still teaching and he says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets and they devour widows' houses and they make show lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. The second thing to watch out for is don't make holiness heroes. People will let you down. Jesus has never let me down. People have. In verse 38, Jesus officially here is rejecting the religious leaders of that day. Some have seen in this, uh, some critics of, of the Christian faith have seen an anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish message, forgetting that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah was the Jewish Messiah standing in the Jewish temple declaring the Jewish faith that there is one God and all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. He is rejecting the religious leaders of that day who were hypocrites, who were liars, who looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were rotten. Jesus gives us some marks of a bad leader. He says they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the place of honor at the banquets. The marks of a bad leader here, it says they take wealth. Flowing robes are a sign of wealth. There are, are things that are uh, indicative of wealth. Um, for a couple of years, before I was a pastor, you know, I, was, I was, uh, worked in management for a chain of grocery stores. And for a couple of years, I was at one of the 10 most profitable, it was a top 10 most profitable grocery stores in the whole country. And it was just down the road from where Bill Gates and all the Microsoft executives lived. 
And Bill never came in, but we, we, had, we knew who his personal shopper was. And Steve Ballmer would come in, who at the time was the CEO of Microsoft, and now he's the owner of the LA Clippers. But he would come in on Saturdays every so often and do his own grocery shopping, which I always appreciated. But Steve would come in and he looked, he would always seem to come in after he had been gardening. Um, and, and, and I, again, I appreciated that. Here's a guy who for his own recreation liked to putter in his garden a little bit. And he'd come in and he'd have a grubby sweatshirt and he'd, be, he'd have a little dirt maybe still on his face or something. And, uh, but he always had a really expensive watch on. You could just tell. Um, there was, oh, okay. This is, not, this is not somebody who's down and out. And then you'd recognize, oh, it's Steve Ballmer. Okay, one of the richest people on the planet. In those days... We think of wealth in terms of cars or houses, but in those days, wealth was things like the material you had. You know, uh, purple robes were very rare and expensive, and so if you wore long, flowing robes, you had taken wealth upon yourself. Honor. They, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to have the best seats. Fame. This is a true story, but 2008, 2009, a, uh, a very well nationally, internationally known pastor of a large church preached a sermon, and in that sermon, he laid out the scam that is fairly common among megachurch pastors. And I grew up in a megachurch, and I I'm thankful that this, I know for a fact this was not true in the church I grew up in. And I have friends who serve in megachurches. Um, we know Bob Middleton, who, who's, uh, Bob and Dorinda have been part of our church, and Bob's really good friends with Pastor Brett over at Athey Creek. Um, Dominic Don over at Jesus Church um, was a teacher of mine in Bible college. Uh, and, and my roommate that semester was Levi Lesko, who's the pastor of Fresh Life Church in Montana, massive multi-site church. Uh, I have friends who are on staff over at uh, Crossroads up in Vancouver, and I've, I've hung out with Daniel Fusco uh, a couple of times. We have mutual friends. These are good people. So I'm not ripping on every mega church you've ever heard of. But this is a true story. There was a pastor, very well-known pastor, who laid out the dirty secret of megachurches and how some of these pastors acquire wealth for themselves and the, the scams that they do to build fame and build their platform. And everybody's like, ooh, he's calling out names and he's, he's being bold. Within five years, he had done everything that he criticized others for. He had done it himself and, and worse. Anytime we put people up we exalt people as some sort of like standard bearer of righteousness and morality. We're disappointed. I'm, I'm grieving for my friends. I, I have a friend who's on the faculty. He's a professor at Liberty University. And this last week, you know, as, as uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. had to resign in disgrace. And it is a disgrace what Jerry Falwell Jr. did. It is a disgrace. It brings shame to the name of Jesus. But when we start to exalt people, we're going to be let down. And when we start to exalt people, what happens is that we start to exalt this idea of looking good on the outside without anything happening on the inside. 
And these guys take wealth and fame and honor on themselves, but they're hypocrites. He says they devour widows' houses and then they make big flowing prayers and look really nice. You know, you can see what's going on is that there's a widow and maybe she doesn't have any children to take care of her. And in those days, that's how you had sort of welfare. We didn't, they didn't have social security. And so it was up to your family or your closest family to take care of you in your, your old age. And so they find some widow and there's nothing left and they, they buy her house for a song and they, they kick her out and they, they, they take everything. And all of a sudden, how did that, how did that rabbi build such a large synagogue? Oh, well, he, he bought a widow's house and he flipped it for a profit or he, he said, oh, I'll take care of your vineyard for you, pretending to be, you know, a good guy. And then he's skimming most of the profits for himself. And that's how he's got those long flowing robes. Most, like 99% of all pastors in America do not make a lot of money. And I, I'm thankful that Faith on Hill has, has supported us um, and, uh, you know, we, we are not, we're not destitute or anything like that. And that's kind of how I think a pastor should be paid. Pastor shouldn't be destitute. Pastor shouldn't be living high off the hog. Um, and we're not here for the money. And, and, and quite honestly, there were a couple of points a couple of years ago where the church f- couldn't pay us for a month here or there. And so I've never said that publicly, but I just want you to know I, that's something that, that um, I'm very aware of, that there's always the temptation and you think, oh, that's just a megachurch problem. But there are small churches where the pastor has an exorbitant salary. There are small churches where the pastor has heaped up all of the honor and, and attention on himself. I mean, I'll say something I really respect about Bethel. And I'm not a fan of some of their theology or practice, but Bethel down in Redding, California, the same is true, I think, of Passion City Church in Atlanta, Georgia. There is a big personality leading Bethel, Bill Johnson. But he has allowed ministries and worship leaders and and other preachers to have a platform. And Jesus culture has expanded and uh, people know who these other worship leaders, Jeremy Riddle and Kim Walker Smith and other preachers who have come out of there. And a lot of big churches wouldn't let that happen. They, they allow for, for that to be a thing. Passion City Church is kind of the same thing. You, you see a Passion album, and they allow that hey, you actually see who the names of the worship leaders are on the, on the tracks, whereas other groups, it's all the branding. And the only name you ever hear about is the name of the lead pastor. And then everything else is done so that no other personality gets a platform. Everything else is minimized. Something I respect about Bethel. He says, don't reduce who Jesus is. Don't look for holiness heroes. Don't elevate people because if you reduce who Jesus is and you elevate people, then you just get human religion. And finally, doing good over looking good. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. So Jesus is in the temple. He's been teaching. and He gets up and he walks over to the place in the temple where they took the offerings. And this wouldn't just be money. Uh, there would have been grain offerings. There would have been um, different sacrifices that would have been presented to the temple storehouses. 
But money was part of it, and he sits there, and it says he watched the crowd putting money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you this, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, and she put everything in all she has to live on. While great men rejected Jesus, while moral men have been false, and we've seen that, that Jesus uh, has called out these false teachers, while rich men have given little. Yeah, it looks like a lot of money, but you know, if you've got $5 million in the bank and you write a check for $100,000, you have still got million in the bank, right? So he's like, yeah, it looks like they've given a lot of money, but compared to you or me, it's like they gave five bucks. Here's somebody who gave everything. This woman, this widow, one of the, in her society, the lowest people in terms of importance, and Jesus singles her out and says that, that's the person. You want to get away from false religion? We got to stop making a system like the world system that glorifies people that don't deserve it. Only Jesus deserves the glory. And there are people all over this world who are doing more for the kingdom of God and you'll never hear about them than any of the famous people that we know of. I do want to say verse 44 is a verse that has been abused, often been abused by the type of religious leaders we've been talking about. My great-grandmother was a poor woman born in the Oklahoma Territory. Eventually made her way up to Seattle, but it was always poor her whole life. Never had any money. And she was a target for those kind of TV preachers, those kind of charlatans and hucksters and scammers. And they, they target those kind of people. And this verse... I do not believe that this verse is saying, hey, if you're poor, give everything you've got and starve. I think this verse is saying, dedicate our whole lives to Jesus. Don't don't just look good on the outside. Oh, look what I've done. And oh, it's so good. And it's really nothing. Like I haven't done anything. And then there's somebody who is quietly just giving their whole life to God. Somebody who, who nobody sees it and they're just doing doing the work God's called them to do. It's easier to be fake, but it's better to be real. It's easy to look the part. And there's a lot of people who've gotten really good at looking the part. And either it's because they've just reduced what following God is to something that's manageable for them, and they don't like it when somebody tries to expand their idea of what it means to follow God, or they're hypocrites, and they look the part on Sunday. And then the rest of the time, it's easy to be fake. It's better to be real. It's easy to look the part. It's better to be really saved by grace and filled with the Spirit. We may not be the biggest church. We may not be the richest church. But if we are the church doing what God has called us to do, then we will be rich in the kingdom of heaven. You may not be 
the greatest person to ever live. But if you give your all to Jesus, that's who God looks at and says, that's that. That's it. That's the person. This kingdom, this world is not our home. We're looking forward to a kingdom that God is building. That God is building. I know I've been a little long today, but I want to say that there is always going to be the temptation for us to just try to be respectable, to look good on the outside, to make Jesus safe, to make Jesus palatable, to make Jesus easy. And then if we just look good enough and make Jesus easy enough, it'll all be okay. And it just doesn't work like that. Because it will fail. And it may not fail you. Maybe you have a saving faith. But will that be passed down to your children? And their children and their children. Religion will fail. And if that's what we give our children, if that's what we give our community, safe religion, it will fail them. Dangerous Jesus, who's bigger, more powerful, and more life-changing than we can ever imagine. That won't fail us. That won't fail our children. That won't fail our community. That's the message that we bring. Jesus is the Savior. The Word of God is true. And Jesus knows that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but His grace is His covering of our sin is more vast and wide and deep and thorough and complete than we could ever know. And all we have to do is trust in Him. Jesus, I believe that You are God. Jesus, I believe that You are the Savior. I believe that when You died, the punishment, the justice that my sins deserved, the justice that every wrong thing I've ever done deserved was taken on the cross. Jesus, help me to bring that message to everyone I meet. To the oppressor and to the oppressed. To the great and to the small. Help me not be respectable to this world, but help me be fully washed in your spirit. Amen. I know I said some things. I named a couple names. If you have questions, my name is Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. Adam at Faith on Hill is my email. God bless you.